As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to connect with you again. I am very happy to welcome Brendan Kerner to the show. He has been a contributing editor and columnist for Wired Magazine, Slate Magazine, The New York Times, and many, many other publications. His books include Piano Demon, The Globetrotting, Gin-Soaked, Too Short Life of Teddy Weatherford, the Chicago jazz man who conquered Asia. The skies belong to us, love and terror in the golden age of hijacking, and the one he is here to talk about today, called Now the Hell Will Start, One Soldier's Flight from the Greatest Manhunt of World War II. So great to have you here. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. Yes. So was this a widely known story before you decided to write a book about it? No, it really wasn't. And the story of how I found it um, kind of shows how esoteric it really was. Um, It dates back to 2003. At that time, I was writing what's called the explainer column for Slate. And the way I would do that column is in the morning, um, myself and my editor, Julia Turner, would look through the morning newspapers and look for stories where there was some detail that was kind of just left hanging and and unexplained. And that we thought, huh, maybe we need to dig deeper into that. And then I'd spend the rest of the day basically making a bunch of phone calls and writing a really quick, you know, 400 words to answer the question. And so in 2003, uh, we came across a story about an Air Force airman who was a translator at uh, Guantanamo. And he'd been arrested for treason. I think the allegation was that he had somehow been assisting prisoners there, passing along messages. And in the newspaper accounts, um, it said that he could be put to death if found guilty uh, of treason. And the question that arose for us was, well, when was the last time or how often does the U.S. military execute uh, its own members? And I I vaguely knew about a A case in World War II, uh, a man named Eddie Slovik, uh, who'd been uh, executed for desertion in Europe. They 
made a TV movie of the week starring Martin Sheen uh, a little before my time, but I was aware of it. So I knew about that, but I wondered, you know, when else has this happened in, in recent history? And so I started poking around and I called the Military History Institute in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I asked, hey, do you have any information about this? And they sent me a bibliography uh, of resources. And in that bibliography, there was a mention of a you know, self-published pamphlet uh, called Manhunt in Burma and Assam by uh, Earl Owen Cullum. And it noted uh, in the margin that this was about the, uh, the search for Herman Perry. And what it said in the, in the footnote in this bibliography was that uh, Perry had eluded capture by hiding out with a Burmese hill tribe. And I just thought, wow, that's uh, such a apocalypse now, heart of darkness kind of story. And I'd never heard of it before. And it's only mentioned here in the barest of mentions, you know, that, that just in passing, really. So I kind of just jotted down in my ideas folder, you know, look into this. And I kind of put it aside for a while. Um, but every once in a while, I'd kind of poke around and there was really almost nothing written about it, um, very, very little. And so over time, I just started to accumulate documents and doing FOIA requests and calling up archives and visiting archives. And, you know, after a couple of years, I kind of realized that this story had such a hold on me, I had to write a book about it. Uh, was this swept under the rug by the military, do you think? Um, I don't think necessarily. I think part of it is because the the story takes place in a very little-known theater of the war. Um, this was what's called the China-Burma-India Theater of World War II. Um, we all know about the European theater and, and the Pacific theater, and those kind of dominate the, the memory of the war for Americans. And the China-Burma-India Theater was kind of a, a sideshow in many ways, um, not really well covered at the time. And this was in a one of the remote, most remotest corners of that war uh, as well. And I think the other thing is that, you know, this involved uh, racism. It involved uh, race, uh, racial issues. It involved white officers and, and black enlisted men in a segregated army. Um, and so that further put it off the radar, I think, of the mainstream press at the time. It was covered some by the, the black press, in the United States, specifically the Chicago Defender had a, a journalist on the ground there in, in India and Burma, and, and he did some coverage at the time. But it really wasn't on the radar for the, you know, the mainstream press here in the States. And so as a result, I think it kind of faded from collective memory soon after the war ended. So before we get to Herman Perry's story, I'd love it if you could tell us about the Lido Road when and why was it built? Who built it? Yeah, so um, in World War II, the Japanese invaded Burma. And in doing so, they cut off what was called the Burma Road. Um, and that had been a major highway that had led from southern Burma all the way up to China. Um, and of course, at that time, the the Chinese government in Chiang Kai-shek, it was a government in exile in uh, Chongqing, in kind of southern central China. You know, they've been pushed out of the, the East Coast by the Japanese invasion and they were, you know, and their, their temporary headquarter, temporary capital there. And they were our allies and we were intent on keeping them supplied. And so once the Japanese severed the Burma Road in half with this invasion, we really wanted to find an alternate way to keep them supplied. So we thought about building a road and we thought, well, where would we build it 
you know, to uh, to, uh, from basically to reach uh, China and and to supply our allies there. And there weren't a a ton of good options, but we eventually settled on a really treacherous route that uh, starts in India in the town of Lido, which became the namesake of the road, pushes over the Patgai Mountains, a very thickly jungled mountain range uh, into northwest Burma, and then kind of snakes around and loops up to the Chinese border at Kunming. And so to do this, it's about a 465 miles that we had to build. We actually had to slash our way through some of the most treacherous jungle on earth to build this road and um, to keep our Chinese allies supplied. And what's really tragic about it is that it was at a tremendous cost of blood and treasure. You know, many, many men were killed building this road. We spent a lot of money doing so. And by the time we built it, there was really no longer any need for it. Uh, it was so late in the war, uh, it was actually completed, not until the spring of 19, 1945, really, that there was no longer any need to really have it. Um, so it, it really was just a, a tremendous waste in the, in the grand scheme of things. And what's interesting is that because the terrain is so rough and the weather is so bad, the monsoons there are terrible. By the next year, by 1946, the road was pretty much washed away, or at least huge chunks of it. Yeah, wow. So let's talk about Herman Perry, the main figure in your book, his background, including how he came to be a soldier in the Army's 849th Engineer Aviation Battalion. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot about Herman Perry's story is really typical for this time. Um, He was born in 1922 in a very small town in North Carolina called Monroe. Basically, a very poor family, um, you know, agricultural family. Not a lot of opportunity, um, you know, there in the South at that time, not a lot of economic opportunity. And so he and his family joined this migration uh, farther north. And um, him and, and his mother um, and his brothers relocated to Washington, D.C. when he was quite young. He dropped out of school at a relatively young age and started working, uh, which was typical uh, for a family in a situation. He worked in uh, as a butcher's assistant um, in a market in D.C. That was his primary occupation as a teenager. Actually, his Brother Aaron Perry um, made a name for himself as a boxer in D.C. and became a very well-known boxer, in fact. Uh, had some really big fights uh, over his career. And so the Perrys were known somewhat in D.C. because of Aaron's success in the ring. But that wasn't Herman's way. Herman was a, a lover, not a fighter, as his family told me. And you know, he had a, a girlfriend in D.C. And you know, he was, when the draft began, uh, during World War II, he he was quite young. Um, he was around 20 years old, I believe. And he was drafted into an army that was segregated. Um, that was the Jim Crow Army. There had been a, a lot of controversy over this and how to handle the induction of African-American citizens into the army. There's a lot of chatter in the Black community saying, well, what, should we go and fight? You know, we're being segregated and, and, and persecuted by by racial laws here in the United States, why should we go and fight for this country that treats us as second-class citizens? And ultimately, there was a decision that, you know, the Black community which would wage what was called the Double V campaign, which is that, yes, they would 
fight in the war. Um, they would be part of the U.S. military, but also they would use their service as um, a reason to press for civil rights on the home front. The thing about the Jim Crow military is that there was a, a lot of, of you know, racial science that the leaders of the U.S. Army and Navy uh, believed in that was that Black soldiers couldn't handle really complex tasks. And so a lot were shunted into kind of menial labor, labor battalions. And that was the case with Herman Perry. So he was assigned, he was sent to a training camp, and he was assigned to what's called a, an engineer aviation battalion. But really what that is, is to learn how to do construction projects, learn how to build roads, to, you know, to do kind of very menial labor tasks. His unit, it was called the 849th EAB, uh, they were then brought up to New Jersey and they were put onto a ship. It was actually had been a passenger ship for the transatlantic trade uh, prior to the war, been, been acquired or, or borrowed by the U.S. to transport troops. And they were put on this ship. They were not told where they were going. And uh, they began this incredibly long sea journey uh, with no idea what their endpoint was. And it basically took them about a month at sea, um, this really difficult journey, being down below decks, you know, really difficult conditions on the ship. And they finally reached land and they are in India, uh, certainly a place that someone like Herman Perry and many of his comrades were maybe not familiar with it all, certainly had never been there, um, maybe had vaguely heard of it, uh, vaguely knew it existed, but they were literally on the other side of the world. These young men, often uh, from very small uh, towns, rural areas, or, or like her in Perry, from a, a segregated city uh, with very little education or, or worldly experience. And all of a sudden, they're on the other side of the world, uh, not really knowing why they're there. And that's kind of the beginning of Herman Perry's journey up to the Lido Road, which is located, you know, a good uh, 2,000 miles from where he landed in India in the first place. His commander was a pretty interesting guy. Um, very kind, understanding. His wife had passed away not long before this, and he was having some difficulty getting over her loss. And the other officers under him had been rushed through the system, and they didn't really have much training, nor the respect of their men. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the issues. Um, with the Lido Road, with a lot of these huge endeavors um, that took place during World War II that weren't necessarily combat endeavors, but you know, you had to have in a segregated army um, a white officer corps, and a black enlisted men, you know, doing the actual heavy lifting. Now, these officers, you know, who were beneath the commander of, of the unit, these were not people who'd gone to West Point. Um, these were routinely people who also, just like the, the men that they would be in charge of, were from small towns, weren't necessarily very well educated. But because they were white, they were considered, oh, well, these people could become officers. Um, whereas like the black um, men will become enlisted, you know, enlisted men and they will be under the command of these officers. So, you know, they would go through pretty uh, light training uh, to become in charge. Um, the other part of this is that the Lido Road was as much money and manpower as we poured into it. It clearly wasn't a top priority for, you know, the people back in Washington, D.C., 
They were fine with writing checks for it, uh, you know, funding it, and 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 but de- then they would delegate to people on the ground, and so this was not a place where the best and brightest were sent necessarily. Um, this was a place where you would kind of dump uh, men many times that you thought like, well, you know, these people, we can't really find a place for them in, in our big combat operations. We'll put them in charge of these engineering units in this kind of secondary project. So you definitely had a situation where you had, you had officers who were not totally prepared for the obligations of, of their positions in charge of, of men who, you know, they didn't know very well. They maybe naturally had, I don't want to say animosity necessarily, but suspicion or distrust because of, of the way that race played a factor in society at that time in America. Um, and so you went in with a lot of, I think, hostility and distrust, and it was just a very toxic mix to start with. Um, and then you add in you know, the hardships of you're living in this completely alien incredibly harsh jungle environment uh, in Northeast India, in Northwest Burma, uh, dealing with so many issues, malaria, leeches, um, monsoons, animal attacks, um, just searing heat. Um, It was a, a really, really nasty place for these men to be. And of course, there is culture shock. Uh, They're dropped into this completely foreign environment without much preparation. Yeah, and I think it's hard for us, you know, in this mass media age to understand what a shock to the system this was for these young men who were from often small cloistered environments in the U.S., Um, people coming down from small towns in Appalachia or, you know, small farming communities in the West or what have you, Um, people who, you know, very, very little education, um, maybe finished high schools that were by our standards would, would only have taught them the basics, uh, you know, the, the, the R's, but not a lot in the way of like history and culture. And they didn't have TV, obviously, or mass media that would prepare them for what life would be like on the other side of the world. And as you note, um, it's a very interesting, different place, this part of the world. So certainly the British had been there for many years. Um, in, in India, in Northeast India in particular, it's a big tea growing area. As- Assamese tea, I think it's world famous to this day. So you had a lot of tea plantations. But aside from just the British and, and obviously the, the, the Assamese and the people um, you know, that work with the British, you also had these, what they called hill tribes, specifically these tribes that were part of the Naga people uh, that lived in the mountains, the Pakai Mountains, that straddled the border between India and Burma. And um, these were people that really had never been subjugated by the British. Um, they definitely had a very uh, different way of living, far less modern, far more subsistence-based. And I think What's really shocking for a lot of people who went up there is that they were headhunters, and they certainly had a religion all their own, um, an animist religion to a large extent, and a lot of it centered on um, headhunting, headhunting raids on rival villages, and a lot of mysticism and things of that nature. And certainly for you know a young American man from a small town who you know only lightly educated and had gone through a few months of training and didn't know anything about this part of the world, it it must have been a lot to handle. Yeah, for sure. 
So Perry would write home and tell his mother that things were going okay, but they weren't going as well as he was spinning it to his family. He goes into the army, you write, as this very easygoing, carefree man. But the pressure of army life, having to slog through these long, hot, hard days, being told what to do, started to take a toll on his psyche. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, he he was sick. Um, that was part of it. Uh, the, the work was incredibly demanding for him. You know, he was not someone accustomed to like this kind of heavy physical labor. He'd been a butcher, of course, in D.C., but that's not quite like digging a, a road through the jungle in Burma. They're, they're a little different. And, you know, he had some problems with authority and he certainly felt uh, hard done by by some of the white officers. He felt like, you know, there, there was bigotry directed against him that affected his treatment and, and that of his comrades. And, you know, as a result of all this, he actually ends up being sentenced to a, to a disciplinary spell in the stockade in Lido, um, where he's horribly mistreated by this, you know, uh, makeshift prison that they erected uh, at, the, at the roadhead in Lido. And he comes out of that experience um, being incarcerated there for a spell, you know, incredibly embittered about everything. And he also comes out becoming more and more dependent on uh, narcotics. Um, you know, opium and, and marijuana are used extensively by native populations uh, on the road, and they sell these to the soldiers. And you have a lot of soldiers who are using marijuana is quite widely used, but um, a few are using opium as well, which is very much part of the Naga culture, um, is used as medicinal there, um, very much so. And it's used recreationally by soldiers, including Perry. And in fact, his use of opium, I think, ultimately leads to a lot of his problems down the line. Right, right. He becomes detached from reality. And he even creates an alter ego to deal with the harshness of his reality. And he gives this alter ego, the name Johnny Talbot. Johnny Talbot, yeah. So he basically, as a coping mechanism, kind of tries to become this other person and like starts, you know, calling himself Johnny Talbot and like etching it into his rifle um, that he's Johnny Talbot, not Herman Perry. And, you know, it's difficult to know exactly what was going on in his mind. He's obviously going through tremendous stress. He's uh, using mind-altering substances at this time as well. Um, but yes, he definitely masqueraded to, to, you know, to others and to himself saying, hey, I'm, I'm Johnny Talbot. I'm not Herman Perry anymore. I think he was trying to hide in an alternate identity in some ways. So he's allowed to visit the lieutenant colonel and basically vent. Would you tell us about that meeting, their exchange? Yeah, so the lieutenant colonel of this unit, a man named Wright Hyatt, was a, a West Point graduate, certainly the most educated man kind of in Herman Perry's general orbit, and, uh, you know, apparently quite a sympathetic man. And he, what he offered was to, to any member of any of the units under his command, he said, if you have a problem, come talk to me. And I'll listen. He didn't promise to do anything beyond listen, but that's something. And so, you know, Herman Perry does go to him and, and talk about the way he feels and some of the mistreatment. And, you know, Hyde doesn't necessarily take action. Um, there's not only, not so much, only so much he can do in the situation, unfortunately, but, but he listens to him and 
Herman Perry kind of files away in his mind that, you know, if I have a, a problem down the line, Lieutenant Colonel Hyatt's door is open to me, and that's a place I can go. He can maybe help me if I run into more problems. We will return after some brief messages. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rahl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. So things begin really going south for Perry when he doesn't show up one day for his shift. And this was on March 3rd, 1944. And he was basically lollygagging. Yeah. Um, It's not not known exactly why he didn't show up for that specific shift, but but he missed it. And um, he was located by one of his direct commanders. And, you know, the, the typical punishment for this is that, you know, you'll be taken to the guardhouse and uh, likely court-martialed. And, you know, he'd faced another court-martial previously for misbehavior, and that's how he'd ended up serving this time in the Lido stockade. And, of course, his mind went directly to, like, well, if they're telling me I have to go to the guardhouse for missing my shift, I'm going to be court-martialed. I'll be right back in the Lido stockade where he was really tortured to some extent. I mean, you know, kept in a, in a small hot box as punishment, just a, an awful experience for him. 
And so he says to these officers, these junior officers that, you know, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go talk to the colonel. Like, like that's his solution that he wants to go talk to the colonel. And they say, well, no, you can't do that. We're going to take you to the guardhouse. And, and that creates a, a serious conflict between Perry and, and these junior officers. Right, right. A, a couple of sergeants named Booker Stitt and Jeff Gobold, they take it upon themselves to apprehend him, but they want to tread carefully, right? They want to let him keep his dignity. So when he tells them he'd like to turn in his weapon on his own, they let him do it. Yeah, so they let him go back to his quarters to retrieve his M1 rifle. And, you know, their assumption is that he'll get the rifle, he'll bring it to them, he'll turn it over, and they can proceed, you know, with bringing him to the guardhouse and probably go into a court-martial from there. Uh, Perry gets the weapon. He comes out, but he doesn't turn it over. He says, well, I'm going to go see Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Hyatt. And he starts walking off in the direction of, of where Lieutenant Colonel Hyatt's, you know, office is located, except now he's armed. And so this really ratchets up the pressure of the situation because, you know, it's not just him saying, I want to talk to Lieutenant Colonel Hyatt. It's him saying, I'm going to do it and, and implying by the fact he's wielding this weapon that, you know, if you try to stop me, something bad might happen. Right. So at some point, he just ignores his superiors. Yeah. So he's basically going off. He's kind of um, almost, I don't want to say in a fugue state, but he's clearly troubled, right? He's clearly kind of wandering off and he has his rifle and he almost looks like he's in a daze. And there's a lot of questions about, you know, the officers, like, what do we do? What, what do we do? And so a lieutenant from New York State named Harold Cady uh, decides that he's going to go off and he's going to confront Perry, who's kind of wandering down the road holding this rifle. Uh, and so Cady comes up towards Perry and basically tells him, like, you know, hand over the rifle. Uh, he's trying to end the situation, take away the weapon. And Perry refuses. And he very clearly says to Lieutenant Cady, don't come up on me. Don't come up on me. And he's actually pointing the rifle at Katie in this moment. And there are several now other soldiers who've gathered to watch this scene. Both white officers and, and black enlisted men are now turning and watching what's going on. Um, the fact that Private Perry is, you know, disregarding this direct order from a commanding white lieutenant that he's not turning over his rifle, that he refuses to comply with this order. And so it's a very, very tense situation. And Katie basically crouches down. The Perry's holding the rifle right at him. And he puts his hands on either side of the rifle. And he kind of makes a motion forward as if he's going to grab the rifle away from Perry. And the gun goes off, Perry fires the weapon, and it hits Katie right in the chest. Um, and he falls to the ground, and it's clear that he's very badly wounded. He's taken a almost point-blank rifle round to the chest in this moment. And Perry's standing there holding the rifle, and in that moment he realizes what he's done, is that he has murdered 
a commanding officer. And clearly, obviously, the punishment in the military for killing a commanding officer is death. And Perry runs off, runs off holding the rifle uh, into the jungle. And indeed, Katie did not survive the wound that he suffered that day. So Herman Perry escapes into the jungle. But then in a sort of a daze, he comes back into camp, right? Yeah, he'd been out in the jungle for a little bit. Um, but then he kind of stumbles back into camp and, you know, some of his comrades, other enlisted men see him and interestingly, they try to help him. Um, you know, they, they tell him that Katie has, has died of his wounds, um, that obviously the army is looking for him. There's a huge manhunt on to, to find him and they urge him to, to run that, you know, they say, basically, if you stay here. They're going to catch you and they're going to kill you. Um, and so they give him some supplies, uh, you know, his friends from the unit. And Perry realizes that they're right and that he has to make a run for it, that, that if he stays there, he's a dead man. And um, he needs to, 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 you know, take a risk and, and go into the jungle. You know, the odds aren't great in the jungle either necessarily, right? But he knows his odds are zero if he stays in camp. So he takes the supplies with gratitude and he bolts for the Indo-Burmese wilderness. So as he's navigating the wilderness, the people looking for him assume they know where he's going. He, he's a soldier, so of course he's got to be looking for female companionship. And that to them meant Calcutta, which was a center for prostitution. So they think he's headed there but he actually goes straight into the heart of the jungle. Yeah. So this was one of the most interesting revelations of my research is how much, you know, looking at the documentation that I was able to obtain, um, looking at the military police talking about this and how much they believe that, well, clearly all the soldiers know that you can't survive in the jungle. So what he must have done is gotten on one of the trains that, you know, runs between Lido and Calcutta. Uh, it's an interesting route. It's 1,500 miles, actually. It's quite a train trip. And you actually have to switch trains from a narrow gauge to a wide, to a regu regular gauge train at some point. But, you know, their assumption was that, well, clearly, this is the only way someone could survive. There's no way that anyone could survive by their own devices in the jungle. So he must have gotten on a train, gotten to Calcutta. And so they launched a huge manhunt in Calcutta, 1,500 miles away, asking around that you know, Calcutta was a, a place where a lot of soldiers went for R&R. &R. There was actually a lot of you know, live music and nightclubs. And um, actually, there were a lot of famous American musicians who went there and kind of established themselves in Calcutta. And, and as you note, there was, um, you know, there was prostitution and there was kind of any kind of vice you could think of was obtainable in Calcutta at that time. So you had, you know, teams of military police, you know, roaming around Calcutta looking for Perry, when in fact, Perry had done exactly what the military police assumed that no one could do, which is go into the heart of the jungle, really the territory controlled by these Naga tribes, and try to establish himself there and try to survive there. Right. So Perry is fortunate for a couple of reasons. Um, first, he, he's hungry, but he stumbles on 
a small group of Brits, and he tells them he's been separated from the officer he was with, I, I believe, and he wrangles some tins of food from them. And then after that, he, he kind of walks into a Naga village and ingratiates himself, presenting some of this food as a gift to the chief. Yeah, and this is really key, I think, is that the assumption among the Americans, the military police, was that any American who was on the run in the jungle, upon running into one of these Naga tribes, would be beheaded. That the assumption was that, well, the Naga are just interested in, you know, they're hostile, they have this religion we don't understand, um, they're violent, they're, they're brutes, and they, they just want to, you know, behead people and take their skulls. And so, the assumption was that that's part of the reason that no one would be able to survive. And in fact, Herman Perry found a much more sophisticated society than in the American officers realized. And he did come uh, to this village, you know, with these, these tins of food, with these supplies. Um, and these were things the Nagas coveted. Um, certainly they had food security issues. They uh, do do agriculture, but it's very difficult in the mountains there. Um, they create, you know, some terraced rice farms and, and they do raise crops. But him bringing things like tinned meats and these kind of like really heavily caloric, really luxury items to the Naga, yeah, really um, endeared himself to them. And he told them, you know, I can get more of these. Um, there are people, his experience going back to camp, he realize that, you know, there are people that supported him, that people he'd, you know, he'd been in his battalion with, saw him, admired him in some ways, because, you know, they had felt the way he felt to some extent. They felt persecuted by their officers and mistreated by their officers, um, often uh, due to racism. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, they saw Herman Perry fight back against this in a, in a, in a very violent, morally dubious way, but that resonated with them. And so he felt that he could get further supplies by connecting again with people he knew from back down on the road. So friends get him a rifle, and he lends this rifle out to his tribe mates for hunting. And soon he falls in love with the daughter of the chief and starts building a comfortable life for himself. Yeah, and I thought this was such an interesting aspect of the story. You're right about the rifle, and that's important because that's not a weapon the Nagas typically have. So for them to get that and to be able to use that for hunting, obviously that's a huge boost to them and, and just shows the Perry's generosity and you know his wiliness, knowing that this would be a gift that would put him in such good stead with his Naga hosts. And Yes, the, the Ong is their, their word for chief, the Ong of this small village. He has a, a daughter and um, he basically sets Perry up for, for him to become married to her. Um, and so for them to live together and they actually create a basha, which is like um, a, a hut where they settle down. And the idea is that Perry is going to farm, um, that he's going to grow rice and opium in the hills and start his life again um, in this village, this Naga village, way back in the jungle. Um, so, you know, one thing I read about in the book, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think it resonates. He's almost like a hippie in some ways. He, he goes back to the land. Um, he kind of strips away modern conveniences, and he 
he tries to create this kind of blissed out life where he's just subsistence farming and he's smoking opium and marijuana and he's got like a a wife and he's just trying to, to, to get by in this kind of like stripped down mode of life that's so different than what he endured on the road. And I think what's also interesting is that, you know, clearly he'd endured so much uh, racist treatment at the hands of his officers while serving on the road. And then he goes into uh, another scenario in the jungle where, you know, he's, he's again, like a, uh, again, a, a situation where there's a different races of, of the people that he's connecting with, but they don't treat him that way. They treat him with respect and dignity that he couldn't get as part of the U.S. Army at that time. So I think he feels like he, he got a surprise second chance at life. So it's gossip, really, that ultimately lead investigators to him. His skin color makes him a popular topic of conversation, within not only his tribe, but others in the area. And eventually, word reaches military authorities. Yeah, that's the problem. So while these Naga villages are isolated, they're not completely cut off from, you know, uh, British and American society in this part of the world. And so you do have Nagas going down to trade with people, they'll bring down trinkets and, you know, some of their, some of their agricultural products. And they, they try to, to trade with people working on the road. And this is a, a really strange situation for the Naga as well. This is not something that really ever has happened with the Naga before, um, with, where a Black American has reinvented themselves as a gentleman Naga farmer in, in the Patgai Mountains. And so, of course, you know, when they go down, there's scuttlebutt. They're talking about like, you know, well, there's this, it's, it's crazy, but there's this black American living up in, in this village called Tagumga up in the mountains. And yes, the military police catch wind of this and um, they enlist some Nagas to help guide them to this village in the mountains. So ultimately, Perry is found. Um, he's surrounded in this hut and again, he had lent his gun out to a, a tribesman, so he wasn't armed. And he eventually catches on that he's being watched and dashes into the jungle, but not before he's shot at and hit. Yeah, and this was one of the most fascinating parts of my research. So I was actually able to track down one of the former military policemen who was involved in this expedition into the mountains to, 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 to find Perry, uh, this village. Um, he was actually living at, he was retired, of course, he was quite elderly, but he was living outside Buffalo. I actually went up to Buffalo and uh, had the, 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 the privilege and the pleasure of being able to sit at his kitchen table and drink coffee with him and hear about this effort where you know, these, this band of military policemen went on what for them was a pretty harrowing expedition up into the mountains and went to this village. And it turned out Perry was living, you know, slightly outside and they had to be up there at night. And they actually, yeah, they surrounded his Basha uh, where he lived with his wife and they chased him out. And there was a firefight. Um, as you know, Perry was not armed, but they fired on him and, and he was, Perry was gravely wounded. In fact, he um, had what was characterized by the medics and the medical records I obtained as a, a sucking chest wound, something with a very low, uh, very low odds of survival uh, and made all the worse by the fact that, you know, they're quite a ways away from, you know, uh, 
any kind of American presence, any kind of military hospital. They actually had to carry him down the mountain with this gaping wound in his chest, and they bring him to a field hospital uh, eventually that they find. Um, and he actually, Perry, almost miraculously survives his wounds um, and recuperates in the hospital, but he recuperates only to be court-martialed for the murder of Lieutenant Katie. So a, a written confession is handed to him, and he protests a little about some of the wording, but he is assured that it is just a general account of what had happened, and he's told just to sign it, and he signs it. Yeah, and this is one of the most controversial legal aspects of the case, is that clearly the police procedure here was, you know, quite outside the bounds of the ordinary, or I think the ethically acceptable, as you note. Um, you know, they brought him, he was medicated, you know, he, there, there had to be some surgery done, um, you know, he was doped up because of the pain, and they bring him this document, and they say, look it over, and, and he kind of, they give him a, you know, a pencil, and he kind of crosses out a word here or there and just kind of just signs the bottom of it. And in that situation, I think it would be a lot to expect him to, you know, to digest it all and, and think about the legal implication. He certainly was not able to consult with a lawyer at any point in this process. But this confession, of course, becomes a key piece of evidence in his court-martial that takes place once he's recuperated from his, from his wounds. The attorney that's assigned to him is way over his head, right? Yes. So I learned a lot about the court-martial process uh, during World War II uh, as it would take place in places like this, you know, where they would look for anyone who had legal experience. And so the army, the prosecutor in question, was a pretty accomplished prosecutor, um, highly educated, actually went on to become a city councilman in Miami, and I interviewed him for the book. Um, he was, I think, 90 years old when I interviewed him, but was just incredibly sharp, had very useful recollections. Um, the lawyer that, you know, Herman Perry was given was someone who basically back home had handled like very minor cases. I mean, things like drunk drivings and, and you know, um, civil matters, divorces, things of that nature, had absolutely no experience with a, a serious felony, certainly not a capital murder case. Um, but that was, you know, the only person they they really tapped and got for him. Um, you know, clearly you're not going to have a ton of people in that area at that time who have experience with the capital murder cases, and they wanted to get this done quickly. Uh, in fact, the court martial takes less than a day once all is said and done. And the outcome does not turn out well for him. He's found guilty. He's sentenced to death. And word is sent back to his mother. And this is not, of course, the typical news that a mother is getting about a son during World War II. He hasn't been killed in action. Uh, of course, it's a shock to her. But once the seriousness of the situation sinks in, she attempts to help him as best as she can. Yeah, so she does, you know, this is a woman with not a lot of uh, connections or resources, but she goes out and, and she does hire an attorney uh, and try to put together some kind of appellate action um, to save her son's life. 
So, you know, while this is going on, you know, basically this all has to be the, the appeal process has to go through. And so while this goes on, Herman Perry is incarcerated uh, at the Lido stockade waiting the adjudication of his appeal. Um, and this takes quite a long time. Um, you know, messages have to go back and forth. The, the attorney that Perry's mother hires does do a bit of work, um, you know, definitely raises some issues uh, with the authorities in Washington, D.C. And so there is a waiting process of uh, several months, actually, while they're waiting for this appeals process to play out. And during this time, Herman Perry is basically languishing at the Lido stockade, you know, waiting to see whether he's going to live or die. And much of the debate was whether this was premeditated murder or manslaughter. But his mental state was pretty much brushed over, ignored by military officials. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's no question it was it was brushed over. Um, I think the fact that, you know, once it was clear that he killed a commanding officer, and I think there was no debate that that is what happened. Um, I don't think any argument he made was going to be necessarily effective, but I think that there's a lot of truth to his pushback against this. I think that clearly he was in a frayed psychological state. He was having, I think we call it now a mental health crisis, uh, pretty, pretty evident. And, um, you know, the fact is that, you know, as he was saying, is that all he really wanted to do was go see Lieutenant Colonel. Um, you know, he was aggrieved. If Katie hadn't, you know, tried to seize his rifle, it probably would have ended up peacefully. Um, and so I think that there is definitely a legal case to be made that this would fit into the classical definition of manslaughter, um, and therefore his life would be spared. He'd certainly still be punished, but uh, he would not perhaps incur the death penalty. But I think ultimately, because of the power dynamics at play, an enlisted man killing a commanding officer, a black soldier killing a white superior, I think it would was very difficult, uh, probably an impossible challenge for for him to receive anything except for the death penalty. We will return after some brief messages. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist? Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their 
Real Stories. Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we are back. So during his time as a prisoner, he was initially secured well. He was handcuffed, his legs were chained, but as time went on, things got more lax. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this is a makeshift prison, Lido Stockade. This is not a great assignment if you're a guard. So, you know, there was definitely, uh, over time, uh, as it became clear that he seemed not to be going anywhere, a more and more lackadaisical attitude. And in fact, you had, you know, people who were incarcerated there going out on work details, um, people who were imprisoned there. Uh, with Perry. And you know, a lot of times when they returned from these work details, they weren't searched. And Perry chose to ultimately take advantage of that lackadaisical security by you know, conspiring with some of his fellow inmates who were allowed to go outside the prison walls during the day and had access to tools. So, yeah. <laughs> so in another incredible twist in this story... Perry manages to escape once more. Yeah, so he uh, is able, some of some of his associates are able to bring him in uh, some tools, um, smuggle them back in from their work assignments. And he actually is able to, in the dead of night, you know, figure out the guards' routes around the, um, around the perimeter. So he uses these tools to, to free himself. And he gets out and he is able to get through the fence. He knows exactly when the guards are looking at certain areas. After being there for so long, he knew the guards' routines pretty much. And he is able to, you know, get out of his holding area, get through the, you know, get under the fence and, uh, and flee back into the wilderness. And so this is maybe one of the most incredible aspects of the story is that he was, you know, literally able to escape from death row while his appeal was, was being processed. And uh, he flees back into the jungle. You know, at this point, he's in uh, India. So he's, he's shy of the Patkai Mountains, but, um, you know, by, by, by some miles, but it's pretty evident that his intention is to get back to the village where his wife lives. And possibly a child at this point. 
Yes, uh, absolutely. So this is one of the most incredible parts of the story um, is this kind of revelation that comes up um, when he's on the run that they realize that his wife is said to be pregnant uh, with uh, with Perry's first child. Um, and so clearly Perry wants to get back there, um, but it's difficult. You know, he's in Lido, so he's maybe like 30, 40 some odd miles, maybe more from where Tugumga is located. It's incredibly difficult terrain uh, to get there. And of course, you know, now these escape from death row, you have this, an even larger manhunt than before. Just the, the, the full force of the military police in this part of the world is out to find him in this area of Northeast India. So how does Earl Owen Cullum become involved in this story, in the search for Perry? So Earl Owen Cullum is, um, he's a, he's from Texas and he's someone with a law enforcement background in Texas. And um, he is, you know, he'd been assigned to the China Burma India Theater as a, a somewhat higher ranking officer in the military police. And, you know, he hadn't really been involved in the initial search for Perry. But, you know, once Perry escapes from death row, the military police realizes they need, you know, pretty much their best man on this assignment. And so Cullum is enlisted to be the officer in charge of this manhunt uh, for Perry. And, you know, he's an incredibly detail-oriented, serious-minded man. And so he really brings all of his talents to bear in trying to obtain the intelligence from the natives necessary to find out where Perry might be hiding in the wilderness and to determine what his, what his route might be in his efforts to return to the village where he once lived. Cullum is initially only peripherally involved in the search, right? Yeah, so um, he's peripherally involved, but, you know, like I said, he's one of these people who actually has experience back on the home front. And so as this manhunt uh, unfolds in, in the weeks and then months following Perry's escape, um, it becomes evident that Cullum is the person with the skills necessary to, to you know, to do the best job of, of pinpointing Perry's location. What does he know that the other men searching for Perry don't? One of the biggest things that struck me about Cullum is his respect for people. Is that like, you know, I feel a lot of these military policemen would kind of find people who might be intelligence sources and, and try to belittle them or strong arm them. And I feel like Cullum was a really good listener and just a really intelligent guy. And he did a really good job of just making connections with people. Um, and he did this not just with natives in this area, but also with black soldiers. And um, he made clear that, you know, there was a big reward that, you know, as much as people and, you know, black soldiers might have idolized Perry or and, and kind of lionized him, you know, he made clear that, you know, he actually, this guy did something that is deserving of, of punishment. And so he's actually able to make a connection, actually, eventually with two black soldiers who'd been in contact with Perry and had vowed to bring Perry supplies. And he's able to convince these two soldiers to help him set up a sting operation to ensnare Perry. So Perry is ultimately found again, and authorities move quickly to capture him. 
Yeah, within a matter of days, in fact. Um, so, you know, clearly, you know, he had escaped death row once before. He humiliated the U.S. Army. He'd evaded the military police for, for months. And so once he was captured, they really poured everything they could into erecting a gallows for this purpose and um, making sure that his second stay on death row was only a few days long. So one of the many interesting aspects of this story is Earl Owen Cullum's embrace of this manhunt as a highlight of not only his military career, but his life. And he feels anguish and some guilt in, in later years. And he thinks about his relationship with Perry, and it haunts him to an extent later in life. Yeah. So I, you know, I should make clear, first of all, like, you know, when I looked at that bibliography initially in 2003, that gave me the, the seed of the idea that became now the Hell Start. You know, the pamphlet, a little booklet, I think it's about 30, you know, small pages that was, you know, about this case. It's called Manhunt in Burma and Assam. And that's written by Earl Owen Cullum. And it's something he wrote not for publication. It was never published. It's something he wrote for his children. Um, he wanted them to be able to know about his involvement in this in this saga. Um, and in fact, it, it's kind of just by stroke of luck that when he passed away, a copy was donated uh, to this Military History Institute in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And that's really the biggest reason that I was able to, to get onto the story in the first place, him trying to document his, his piece of his involvement in all of this. And I, I think that as I dove deeper and deeper into this, I realized how large this story loomed in the way that Perlow and Cullum thought about his life. And um, he, he went on to become an FBI agent when he returned to the United States and had, you know, had tons of great stories. And I was able, had the privilege of spending time with his daughter, um, who knew a lot of these stories. Um, and this was the case, I think, that he thought in a lot of ways defined him. And I think that he pondered a lot about what it meant, you know, philosophically about you know, the nature of existence and why we are the way we are. And I I think the way I talk about it in the book is that, you know, it was a it was a riddle because you can see that he had a lot of respect for Perry, the way that he was able to survive and flourish while the lamb. And he also understood why Perry snapped. He's very upfront about that in his writings, saying that, you know, if I'd been in he says this, if I'd been in the same situation, I it could easily have been me. I'm the one who could have snapped. And so I feel like he pondered this question a lot of like, why am why was I able to have the life that I did and, and Perry had the life that he did, but we have so we have so much in common underneath everything. And so I feel that his involvement in this led him to ask a lot of philosophical questions. And I think what's notable is that many years later, Cullum tracked down one of Perry's relatives. Um, who yeah, was a minister, I believe, if memory serves, and sent him a letter about his thoughts about this case. It's very moving. Um, Cullum's daughter shared it with me, and it's very moving. I think gets at a lot of these themes that, you know, the, the what does this story tell him about why we are the way we are and why are we here? And I feel like this, you know, even though his piece of the drama was only part of it and that he only knew Perry for a very short time, it it resonated with him. And I feel the, 
the reasons that resonated with him are the reasons that the story resonated with me in many ways. Right, right. So Perry was buried near the site of his execution, but he would later be interred at Schofield Barracks. Yeah, and so when I was researching this, you know, one of the, the great pleasures of this was I was able to, to find Perry's last surviving sibling, uh, his sister, uh, Edna Wilson, um, who, who passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. But um, I remember going for the first time to, to visit uh, Miss Wilson and in Washington, D.C., where she lived, and, you know, sitting in her kitchen and talking to her. And what struck me is that she had no idea where her brother was buried. Um, no idea. And she asked me, I remember that we ended that first conversation and I was about to leave for the day. And you know, she said, I, can you do me a favor? And I, I didn't know what she was going to say next. And she said, I want you to, to find where my brother is and see if we can get him home. And you know, she made clear to me that it was very important to her that her brother's remains come back to Washington, D.C. To, to, to be with the family. And so, yes, I did the research. I found out that he was buried in a section of, of that military cemetery in Hawaii that's actually reserved uh, for people who've been executed, actually. And um, interestingly, they bury them with their in this one section with their heads facing away from the American flag as kind of a, a, you know, a last bit of dishonor. You know, fortunately, I was able to contact the superintendent of the cemetery, uh, who was just uh, extremely lovely and helpful. And um, we were actually able to, with you know, with with Miss Wilson's and the superintendent's cooperation, have uh, Herman Perry's remains disinterred and cremated and um, given to the Perry family in Washington D.C. Wow, what a story! So I'd like to ask you briefly, before you go, about your book, The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. Mm -hmm. I did an episode a few months ago about D.B. Cooper, and you were on the podcast that my guest hosts. I I was, yes, yes. (laughs) Would you mind summarizing your book for us? What's it all about? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um... So it's basically about the central story is about a young couple in 1972, a 22-year-old um, Vietnam veteran and his girlfriend, a 20-year-old girlfriend who worked in a massage parlor in San Diego. And uh, they, for extremely complex reasons, end up hijacking a plane uh, out of Los Angeles, a Seattle-bound plane, end up hijacking it to Algeria in uh, June of 1972. And it's the story of, of, you know, how they went about doing that and the hijacking itself and then the the many years that followed um, because their story by no means ended with them arriving in Algiers with the plane and $500,000 in cash. Um, But it uses that central narrative as a way to explore what I call the, the golden age of hijacking. It's this this time period between 1961 and 1972, when there were 159 hijackings in the United States airspace, most of those happening between 68 and the end of 72. And I just talk about this phenomenon and 
kind of why why it happened and and some of the characters who were involved in it and what it tells us about American history and society. Uh, so yeah, it's um, definitely in some ways connected to the Nada Helva start of, of telling a a central narrative as a way to explore deeper themes about about this country. Um, so structurally, it, it's got some similarities. Um, and it deals with things like like racism and um, you know institutional failures are, are some of the some of the grand themes. But it's certainly a, a much more recent history, you know, certainly. And I think it, it resonates today, you know, with uh, I think a lot of the debate going on now with things like gun control and, and terrorism. And, and uh, I really wanted it to have import for our present day in, in writing that. So for those who might want to reach out to you. How would you recommend they do it? Yeah, so I am uh, make myself purposely very easy to find. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter, just at Brendan Kerner, and my email address is in my bio. Um, so you can drop me an email anytime. Uh, always happy to hear from folks or send me a direct message. My, my DMs are open, so you can contact me there. And I... I try to respond to everyone who reaches out. I, I really do love um, connecting with readers and curious curious folks. It's one of the, the great pleasures of this line of work. So I encourage people to get in touch if they feel so inclined. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate it. So once this interview was over and I was listening back to it, I realized that I had gotten a little... Uh, swept away with the flow of the story and what happened next to Herman Perry. And I neglected to ask Brendan about the murder victim, Harold Cady, his background, which is very important to me in any murder case I cover. So I contacted Brendan and asked if I could revisit the story with him, ask him specifically about Lieutenant Cady, and of course he said yes. So here we are with one final question. So I'd, I'd like to ask you about the victim, Lieutenant Cady. What can you share with us about him? Yeah, sure. So Harold Cady uh, is from originally from a town uh, in kind of south central uh, New York State called Big Flats. Uh, it's, I guess, between Elmira and Corning. And he was raised there by his aunt and uncle. And uh, as he grew up, he was born in 1915, and uh, in his late teens, uh, it seems he moved to the town of Woodhall, um, about 45 minutes away, a very small farming community. And he uh, was married there, uh, a woman named Myrtle. Uh, in 1940, uh, at the age of 25, uh, he actually enlisted in the Army, and he joined the Coast Artillery Corps, and he was posted to Hawaii. And he actually uh, survived the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, was involved in that battle uh, that started America's participation in World War II. Uh, and soon thereafter, he actually was sent to officer candidate school. Um, this was a 90-day program uh, that uh, men went through so they could become lieutenants. Um, and it seems that probably just before he entered OCS, um, his wife became pregnant uh, with their first child, um, a girl named Paula, who was born probably around 1942, 43. Um, so was quite young when Lieutenant Cady uh, was sent to work on the Lido Road uh, in 1943. Again, I have been speaking to Brendan Kerner. 
His book is called, Now the Hell Will Start, One Soldier's Flight from the Greatest Manhunt of World War II. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.